We are in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Would you hear with me the word of God? Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. The Pi- then Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and After having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling, and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Would you pray with me? Oh God, help us this morning to comprehend what is happening in this text. Help us to see the heart of God for His children, help us, God, to to have renewed fervor for God, to have renewed desire and passion for the things of God and for the people that you have come to rescue. God, break our hearts for the lost as you were broken for us. God, compel us in these moments to come to to pay attention to who you are and what you've done for us. God, to stand back and more than just being amazed like Pilate, to to truly worship you today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you about Jesus, our substitute. And as our substitute, we see that he is the sovereign king, he is the silent lamb, and he is the sinless Son, He is presented to us as all three in this text, the sovereign king, the, sin, the silent lamb of God, and the sinless son. As we turn to chapter 15, things have rapidly devolved for Jesus. He hasn't slept from Thursday night into Friday morning. He's gone from Passover meal to trial and now stands before Pilate. 
what the religious leaders had intended to do after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They are now scrambling to accomplish it right in the middle of that feast and before the Sabbath, for you can't crucify and bury on the Sabbath. At Gethsemane, we're reminded it's the Father's will for the Son to drink down the cup of God's wrath against sinners. Yes, Jesus will suffer, and He will be silent before trumped-up charges, but we should not mistake His silence as passiveness on the way to the cross. Jesus is doggedly determined to give Himself as a substitute, a payment for sin, to be punished in our place, something that only He is qualified to do as the sovereign and eternal King the silent Lamb of God and the sinless Son of the Father. You see, the religious leaders think that they are taking the life of Jesus once for all, but Jesus is actually laying His life down once and for all in order to free sinners. It's early Friday morning, and it is the day that He will do exactly that. This morning, for us to appreciate who Jesus is, for us to comprehend what He's done, to To appreciate the cross, there's four things that we see in this text that we must do. First, we must understand Jesus is the King of the Jews, the King of creation. Second, we must not mistake Jesus' silence for weakness. Thirdly, we must be released from death row by Jesus, God's sinless Son. And finally, we must offer Jesus the worship that He is due. Let's take these in order, shall we? First, we must recognize Jesus is the sovereign king of the Jews, the king of all creation. You see, it's, it's early Friday morning in verse 1, and the Sanhedrin are moving quickly. They, they don't have the authority to carry out capital punishment without the authorization from Rome. And Sabbath will begin at sundown, and so they're, they're in a hurry. Furthermore, Roman governors or procurators, as Pilate was, handled new cases early in the day, and by noon they took off to go play a round of golf, or whatever it was Roman governors did back then. As a brief aside, before we dive into the heart of this text, it's interesting to me that ancient primary documents outside of the Scriptures confirm that Pilate was a Roman procurator in Judea, from 26 to 36 A.D. You know what that means? It means the Bible's accurate. There's there's a lot of people who want to tell you the Bible's a bunch of made-up stories, it's a bunch of bunk, and somehow they invented this guy, Jesus, which is a nice way to try and get out of your responsibility to respond to Jesus, but unfortunately for those who want to think that, the whole Bible is historically accurate, and it's been confirmed as accurate time and time again. So it's very difficult to conceive of the disciples making up something about Jesus with all these other precisely historically accurate details which people around them could verify or not. Pilate was a governor in Rome, or in Judea rather, from 26 to 36 AD. So from Mark chapter 3, if you think about the whole book as we've been working through it, from Mark chapter 3 verse 6 forward, the religious leaders have been wanting to destroy Jesus. And in verse 1, they think they finally have what they want. They bind Jesus, they carry him away, and they deliver him to Pilate. These words are words that describe not only the activity of the Sanhedrin, however, they also, in some ways, describe the activity of God, who is bearing his son 
and delivering him over to death for us. We get the sense in this text that even though the Sanhedrin seem to be in control, that it is actually God who is still in control. They bind Jesus, but Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is at work binding Satan and plundering his house, Mark chapter 3, verse 27. When they deliver Jesus over to Pilate, God is at work delivering Jesus over to death in order to rescue sinners. So here we have Jesus, who's had no rest, questioning by Pilate. And the Sanhedrin stand before Pilate, knowing full well that Pilate could care less about the sin of blasphemy. He's not interested in Jesus or Jesus' father. It's not of concern to him. And so they charge him, not with blasphemy, which they had charged him with the night before, but rather with seeking to undermine the state, seeking to undermine Rome. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, they say this, they began, it says this, they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And the charge that sticks is the one that's true. Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. In verse 2, like the high priest the night before, Pilate asks a question in the form of a statement. You are the king of the Jews. You are the king of the Jews. And Jesus responds simply, you're saying it. Or you say so. The you is emphasized there. The point that Jesus is making is is something like this. Edward summarizes his point this way. You would do well to consider the question. You would do well to consider the question. What if I am the king of the Jews? Yes, he is the king of the Jews, but not just any king of the Jews. Not just a run-of-the-mill king of the Jews who does some good and some bad and ends up dying. He is the king of the Jews, the king of glory, the one that David called Lord. He's the one who was king of the Jews before there ever was a king of the Jews. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the king of creation. He's the forever king who sits on the forever throne of David, 2 Samuel 7, 13. He's the king of glory. He's the king from Judah who will receive obedience not just from Jews, but from people from all nations, Genesis 49, verse 10. He's the king who will rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the end of the earth, Psalm 72, verse 8. He's the king who is coming again and on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19 and verse 16. He's the king. And consider the great irony. That happens in this moment. Pilate, a governor in Judea, some 2,200 miles from Rome, trying to work his way up and to be significant in the the empire of Rome. Here he is in this remote town of Jerusalem, far away from the hubbub of Rome, and it seems like it's an insignificant trial in an insignificant place, and yet... It's this little Roman governor who is putting the king of kings and lord of lords on trial. The only reason that Pilate has authority to question Jesus is Jesus allows Pilate to question him. Jesus said in Gethsemane, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? 
Church, although it seems that Jesus is defeated standing before Pilate, Jesus is winning. He's doing exactly what he came to do. He is trampling over death by the death that awaits him. The Sanhedrin and Pilate and the crowds, they are human actors on the divine stage. They are freely choosing to crucify Jesus, guilty of his death, but it is Jesus who is willingly laying down his life at the same time. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one has taken his life away from him. He lays it down of his own initiative. He has authority to lay it down, and he has authority to take it up again. From whence does he get this authority? He's the eternal king of glory. He is the king. His death and resurrection and promised return demand a response from every sinner. This king who died for you also rose for you and lives for you. And the question he asks of every man and woman and boy and girl is, will you surrender your life and take up his? Will you die to self and live for Christ? Will you live for this king, not only of the Jews, but of all people in all times and all places? We must recognize that Jesus is the king. But secondly, we must not mistake Jesus' silence for weakness. In verse 3, the chief priests believe that their case is turning out to be a dud. It's unraveling. The dossier that they had on Jesus turned out to be phony. Pilate seems unconvinced of their case. They began accusing Jesus harshly with a barrage of attacks. Pilate asks if Jesus will answer, but Jesus simply says nothing. Have you considered, however, what Jesus could have said? Have you ever thought about in that moment what Jesus could have said? All the times that he's known what people were thinking before they said it. All the times that he's predicted that somebody in a place that he even isn't located has already been healed. All the times that he's predicted, oh, well, you'll find a donkey in this way, or you'll find make preparations for the Passover meal in this way. Jesus is God in the flesh. He, he could have refuted every single false accusation that was made against him. He could have named every single accuser. And, oh, by the way, their father and their mother all the way back to Adam and Eve if he had wanted to. He could have named not only their accusation, but their motivation for accusing him. He could have exposed every sin they ever committed and for which he was about to die. He could have struck them all dead. He could have opened up the earth and consumed them as God did in the Old Testament. With the priests who offered strange fire. He knows he left heaven to rescue sinners by paying the price for their sin. And so Jesus who could have eradicated them, eliminated them, or embarrassed them. He does nothing. Nothing. He remains silent and he takes the punishment of the guilty so that the guilty may go free. Pilate doesn't understand. Jesus, don't you want to say something? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Folks, Pilate has tried capital cases before. He's seen grown men plea for their life. He's seen grown men lie through their teeth, denying their guilt, begging for mercy as the cross awaits them, but he's never seen anything like this. 
with the cross before him. Jesus is silent, and he's silent for you and for me. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 7, who is like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. For Jesus to defend himself would have derailed his father's mission. Church, his silence is not weakness. It is not inaction. It is incredible self-awareness and self-control and strength. Jesus does not answer because he has resolved to overcome your sin and my sin through his death. And Pilate, in verse 5, stands before Jesus amazed. He marvels at Jesus. He wonders at Jesus. Who is this man who stands before these charges and before the horrors of the cross? Silent. As Aiken writes, sinful men can only watch in amazement. No defense, not a word. Jesus will see to it that he goes to the cross. But it's not enough, friends, to be amazed by Jesus. Earlier in Mark, the crowds are amazed by Jesus. But in just a few more verses, both Pilate and the crowds will contribute to the crucifixion of Jesus, the sovereign king and the silent lamb of a holy God. We've got to recognize that Jesus is king. We've got to recognize that Jesus is our, su- our silent substitute, the Lamb of God going to the cross. And thirdly, we must be released from death row by Jesus, God's sinless Son. Did you know that everyone who has not yet trusted in Christ and known the forgiveness of the Heavenly Father that's available through the shed blood of Jesus is on death row? The whole world, apart from Christ, is on death row. And it's a death that never ends because it's a sin that's been committed not just against your son or your daughter or your wife or your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad. It's a sin and against an infinite holy God. And sin against an infinitely holy God is infinitely punished. We're on a terrible road, a terrible death row. In verse 6, we learn that at the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Pilate would free a prisoner. Pilate's not convinced that Jesus is a threat or that he's guilty, and he thinks he sees a way out of this pickle. While Peter has denied Jesus three times, incidentally, the night before, we now see Pilate advocating for Jesus three times. It's amazing. Verse 9, we've got this Gentile governor Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 12. What shall I do with him that you call the king of the Jews? Verse 14. As they cry out, crucify him. Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? Amazing, is it not, that God uses a Gentile governor to proclaim for us, to shout for us the innocence of his son. There's no sin in him. In verse 10, Pilate adds... Or Mark tells us about Pilate's understanding that he knows this whole thing is a charade. That it's not about anything bad that Jesus has done. It's about the envy of the chief chief priest whose power has been cut by the presence of Jesus. He says he knows they handed Jesus over because of envy. And then if if we doubt perhaps that we're understanding this text correctly, we flip over to John chapter 18 verse 38 where Pilate says simply, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Pilate confirms what we already know. Jesus is innocent. 
Jesus is sinless. Jesus is the spotless, blameless, perfect sacrifice for sinners. So Pilate's got a plan. Well, what am I going to do to get out of this little jam? I know what I'll do. The crowds have been amazed by Jesus, just like I've been amazed by Jesus. Surely the crowds will release Jesus. So Pilate has a plan in which he can let Jesus go, not violate his conscience, release an innocent man rather than a guilty man, because he'd rather not release a guilty man who's been an enemy of the state. And oh, by the way, he could stick it to the Sanhedrin at the same time, who are always trying to raise their power to the level at which they contend with the Roman government there in Judea. So he's got, he's got a trifecta. My conscience will be clean. I'll be in with the crowds, and I'll stick it to the Sanhedrin. I'll let Jesus go. That's what I'll do. But Pilate's plan is not God's plan, is it? Suddenly, the fickle crowds follow the chief priests, and they call for Jesus' crucifixion. Now, you might be wondering, like me, what in the world happened to the crowds? I mean, it was a week ago that you were waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, and now it's Friday, and you're like, yeah, crucify Jesus. Why? What happened to the crowds? Here's what happened to the crowds. They wanted a king who was going to come and conquer politically. They wanted a king who was going to conquer right now. They didn't want a king who was going to conquer their sin. They didn't want a king who would stand silent before this puny little Roman governor, and if Pilate is standing in judgment of Jesus, then surely he's not the king that I want to follow. You just take Jesus. Must have been wrong about him. Must have misunderstood him. God knew that Pilate, like many politicians today, would only side with Jesus as long as it was politically expedient to do so. And as the crowd shout out all the more, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate's little plan falls apart. And in verse 15, Pilate frees the guilty and he condemns the innocent to the horrors of the cross and crucifixion. Now, if you've been tracking this text, you're going, Daniel, I I appreciate your insight into this text so far, but what about Barabbas? Why, Why haven't you talked about Barabbas, and the reason I haven't talked about Barabbas yet is because I think Barabbas is so important to our understanding of the fact that Jesus is our substitute. He's not just our example going to the cross and denying himself. He is our substitute. He is the Lamb of God taken in place of sinners, and I believe that we see that through the use of Barabbas. Isn't this story about the crucifixion of Jesus? Why why mention Barabbas? Because The mention of Barabbas' sin and release from death row is a picture of the significance of what happens at the cross. It's a picture of what Christ does for every single sinner who trusts in Him. Mark again invites us to make a comparison. He's been inviting us really in chapter 14 to make comparisons. And now in chapter 15 he continues this this theme of comparing and contrasting, and now he's asking us to make a comparison between Barabbas and Jesus. Jesus, the innocent one, is condemned to crucifixion. And Barabbas, the insurrectionist and the murderer, goes free. Jesus gives his life to free a man who's taken lives. Barabbas a rightful prisoner. Barabbas is a rightful prisoner. Jesus 
has done nothing wrong. Barabbas should be on death row. Jesus is the Lord of life. Barabbas deserves the chains. He deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done? All he's done is heal and feed and serve and bless and restore and deliver. And there's a debate about whether to take Barabbas or Jesus. Do our hearts not cry out in this moment? Are you serious? How could this be? Surely they would plead for the life of Jesus. Why would they call for the life of Barabbas? And then we're reminded, church, that God is in control. That something bigger than we can understand is taking place here. We are reminded that the Father is at work offering up Jesus for us. We're reminded that we are Barabbas. We're reminded that Jesus is silent so Barabbas can go free. We're reminded that the silence of Jesus is Jesus pleading for the release of sinners. Did you know that Jesus died to release you from your guilt and from your chains and from your sentence on death row? With his silence, church, Jesus is shouting, Father, take me and release Barabbas. When we think of Barabbas, I don't know about you, but we tend to think, I tend to think of really bad people. People who don't deserve a second chance. People we are tempted to think that God could never rescue. You know, abusers and deadbeat parents and people who don't pay their child support and murderers and abortionists and addicts and charlatan preachers and compromised politicians. But when we read the name Barabbas, we should be thinking of ourselves. Did you know what the word Barabbas means? Barabbas, bar Abbas, son of an Abba. Barabbas means son of a father. Do you see it? We have the son of the father going to the cross while the son of a father is set free. The sinless son of the father is crucified and a sinful son of a father is is his chains are released. This is the miracle of the cross. Jesus dies in our place so that we can know the love of the heavenly father. The love that only Jesus deserved but which he died so that you could have a share in. Every single one of us here this morning is either the son or the daughter of a father. Every single one of us is a bar abbas. Every person here today is one half your father. DNA will prove that to you. And apart from Christ, your father is every single bit the insurrectionist that Barabbas was. And so are you. Adam's insurrection, his rebellion, his rejection of God's authority in the garden is in the heart of every single man. It's the testimony of Romans 5. Whether we 
know our dad or not, whether our relationship with our daddy was good or not, whether our daddy is pleased with us or not, whether we made our daddy proud or not, whether we lived up to his standard or not, whether we were as successful as he was or not. Every single person I've met in life has daddy issues that their daddy simply cannot solve. We have inherited our father's sinful tendencies. We've inherited our daddy's rebel heart. And the only answer is not that we would live up to the standard of our daddy, that we would find the acceptance of our daddy, but the only answer is that we would find the love of the heavenly father through Christ the son who was crucified for you. Nobody else loves you like that, not even your daddy. So some of you have got issues with your daddy because you've been looking at your daddy and then looking to God. But the Bible says look to God and then look at your daddy. You want to know the love of the father? Look at what he did in order to love you like his son. He let his son go to the cross so he could release you from the chains. He could release you from the shame. He could release you from the pain. So God sends his one and only begotten beloved son, the second and the better Adam, to give his life for you so that you could be remade through Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is condemned to death to set you free from death. As Judas Smith says, Jesus knew the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas represents us. He represents all the sons and daughters of a father who need to know the joy of being loved by the Father. And what a love it is. The Father punished his son to be able to withhold punishment from you but pastor i'm i'm so ashamed of what i've done jesus already bore your shame but pastor if you only knew what i've jesus already knows what you've done and he says give me your sin let my father be your father let my death be your death so that you may live in the light of god's unfailing love Judah Smith continues, your greatest challenge is not your discipline, it's not your devotion, it's not your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, that He gave His only Son to take your place? Where do we get off Thinking we're going to set ourselves free, do better, try harder, aim higher. These are all self-centered replacements for what you really need. Jesus in your place. Some here this morning need to run to Jesus and give Him your sin. Let Jesus take your sin to the cross. And the only way you can do that is in repentance saying, God, I reject my rebel life. I reject my insurrection. And I want to turn to you and live for you. And in that moment when you trust in Jesus and let him take your sin to the cross and you stand in the forgiveness of the Father and the overwhelming love of the Father, you will finally be alive. Jesus says, give me your sin and I'll take it to the cross. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, without knowing it, the rebellious, the religious leaders in Pilate and Barnabas, excuse me, Barabbas, were all part of a tapestry of grace, which God was weaving for sinners. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the sins of others. He did not, did not die for himself, he died for us. And then he asks, have you ever seen what they were all too blind to notice? 
Have you ever seen what they were all too blind to notice? I have a fourth point, but I think I'm going to save it for next week. Because I think that's a good place to land this morning. Do you recognize that you're Barabbas? And have you ever run to Jesus in repentance? And let him take your sin to the cross so that you might know the love of a heavenly father who never, ever fails. Jesus is the sovereign king, the silent lamb, and our sinless substitute. This morning, if you don't know him, if you've been trying to do more, be better, Strive harder. And it hasn't worked yet. Guess what? It never works. There's only one thing that will give you life. And it is knowing the love of the Heavenly Father through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if that's not true of you today, don't put it off another minute.